It's New Year's Eve, 2016. Then-Governor Andrew Cuomo and his wife descend an escalator underneath 2nd Avenue in the New York City borough of Manhattan. Behind them ride a gaggle of men in suits and women in evening gowns. Cuomo flashes a smile to one of the dozens of cameras, followed by a thumbs up and a wave. They turn to board a colorfully decorated new subway car, emblazoned with the words, Second Avenue. It's the kind of grandiose ribbon-cutting moment that every politician dreams of. We needed to show people that government works and we can still do big things and great things and we can still get them done. But this was no ordinary transit project. It took nearly a century to finish. And it was the most expensive per-mile subway project ever. Welcome to Beneath the Surface, a podcast from Stripe Press all about new ideas and big questions in the world of infrastructure. I'm your host, Tamara Winter. In our last episode, we looked at rising housing costs. Today, we're looking at what could be considered the other side of the same infrastructure coin, transit. I grew up in a suburb of Dallas, Texas. We have the DART, or Dallas Area Rapid Transit, but its efficiency and convenience leave a lot to be desired. According to census data compiled by HomeArea.com, the share of commuters in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area that use public transit is 1.4%. And that tracks with my experience. Growing up, I would take a train once in a while, but only on special occasions, to the Texas State Fair or the stockyards in Fort Worth. Trains were a special treat, not something that was part of my main transportation diet. By contrast, I moved to New York City in 2021, and the city subway has just become a part of my daily life, as it is to 3.1 million other New Yorkers. And I learned that only a few years before I arrived, a new subway line opened underneath 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. It was a rare new addition to one of the largest and oldest subway systems in the world. Phase one of the project was completed in 2017. It is a modest two miles of track and three stations. It runs through the Upper East Side neighborhood. The price tag was around $4.4 billion. And that's just one of the four phases of construction. Phase two will extend the line north into East Harlem and is expected to open sometime between 2027 and 2029. The cost of phase two is expected to surpass that of phase one. Phases three and four would extend the line along Manhattan's east side, all the way to the financial district at the island's southernmost point. These phases currently have no funding commitments or timelines. I guess the thing that gets me is that this subway line was first proposed in 1920, over 100 years ago. So why has it taken so long to construct? Why is it costing so much? 
And what can we learn about public transit? Not only where the Second Avenue project got it wrong, but where other places get it right. In New York City, the subway is the lifeblood of the city. This is Sarah Kaufman. She's the associate director of the Rudin Center for Transportation at New York University. At NYU, I do research, I conduct events, and I teach mostly around the topic of transportation and technology. She's also worked at the city's transit agency itself. I previously worked at the MTA, which is the Metropolitan Transportation Authority here in New York, which is the organization responsible for New York subways and buses, as well as several bridges, tunnels, and highways. Before COVID, the subway was handling about five and a half million people per day. And then we also have the largest bus system in the country. And before COVID, it was handling about 2 million people a day. New York City does not function without its subway and bus systems because that is how everyone gets around. In a lot of U.S. cities, the only people who take buses or trains or lower income people. But here in New York, you could be sitting next to a multimillionaire or someone who is very low income. And, you know, everyone's riding it together. It's a great equalizer. Today, the subways might be the city's lifeblood, but a quarter century before the first trains began running underground, elevated trains rumbled above Manhattan's busiest avenues. Gleaming skyscrapers are traditional landmarks of New York. But there are other landmarks, like the grimy ribbon of steel. Officially, They were loud, dirty, and choked the city street life under a canopy of metal. For 76 years, L trains clattered by, carrying people to work and home again. But the old steel skeleton outlived its usefulness. Passengers dwindled. And so the L is being torn down. The city began phasing out these elevated trains, known to New Yorkers at the time as the L, because the more modern, underground subway lines were being built. Well, most of them were being built anyway. So the first concept for the Second Avenue subway was published in 1920, and it was just an idea. And the city planned to start construction in the early 1930s. But as you know, the Depression hit, and so there was no funding for a new subway line. Once the country recovered... Second Avenue. Miles of new housing need miles of new track. Different capital project amounts went into repairs and other subway lines, and so there wasn't funding for this project. There were fits and starts over time in the 40s, 50s, and 60s based on federal funding and state funding, as well as governance changes for the MTA itself. Much of the transportation future will be hidden below the ground in more than 50 miles of new subways. Soon there will be a new two-track subway that will run the length of Manhattan on 2nd Avenue right up to the Bronx. The city did actually start construction in the early 1970s. However, New York City soon fell into severe economic and political turmoil, leading to high unemployment and rising crime. New York City subway system, 
it has turned into a nightmare for the millions who ride it each day. The reason for the crime wave? The city says it doesn't have the money to pay for transit police. Again, the Second Avenue subway was put on the back burner. New York was left with several mini tunnels under Second Avenue, but nothing that connected and nothing that was yet able to have a train because these tunnels were not contiguous. The 1980s and 90s saw the city crawl itself out of the fiscal hole and finally start to bring down the crime rate. In December 2001, just three months after the 9-11 attacks shook the city, research began on the impact of constructing the Second Avenue tunnels to the city and the environment. These impact statements were finished in 2004, and plans were developed for the next two years. So finally, construction resumed in the 2010s. We're here today uh, starting up the tunnel boring machine, which you see behind me, for the 2nd Avenue uh, subway. This is a tremendously exciting day. It was seen as a shovel-ready project in the 2010s. A lot of it had to do with federal investment because this project is just too large for local or state investment to have completed. And so once there was a real federal commitment to transit, mostly thanks to Obama, the city was able to work on this project. That leads us to then-Governor Cuomo's grand opening gala, unveiling a stretch of track from 63rd Street to 96th Street, underneath 2nd Avenue. Thank you and God bless you a few minutes, and we're going to have a great new year. Thank you. So yes, nearly a hundred years later, the Second Avenue subway was eventually built. Well, one of four parts were built. And pre-pandemic, the line saw around 200,000 weekday riders. That's more than the entire Atlanta rapid transit system. So sure, it's doing its job. But then there's the issue of cost. The Second Avenue subway was the most expensive subway built in the history of the world in mile per mile basis. The total cost was around $2.6 billion per mile. There's a lot of great research done about construction costs in the U.S. being just astronomically high. If you look at the work of Elon Levy. Okay, I found the sound recorder. My name is Alon Levy. Alon is a transit researcher. They run the websites Pedestrian Observations and the Transit Costs Project. Alon's interest in transit costs started when they were studying for their PhD. I got an interest in the subway, just I mean, it's a thing that people do in New York. They ride the trains and I saw, okay, this is how the system laid out and started thinking about maybe gaps in the system, what could be added, what could be changed. And somehow this has gone to trying to compare it with a lot of other big uh, systems. And this is when I realized just through a little bit of Googling that the construction costs of subway construction in, in New York, of Second Avenue subway were very high. That led them to look at other subway projects. They checked a bunch of huge global cities Alon found that the global average cost of transit projects was around $400 million per mile. 
The Second Avenue project was six times that. This led them to start the Transit Costs Project. It's a website that catalogs the costs of transit projects around the world. Right now, we have a database of something like six hundred items. We have close to complete coverage of subways built in the last twenty or twenty-five years. The Second Avenue subway is extreme, both in timeline and cost, but. It's not unusual in the U.S. for transit projects to fall behind schedule and go over budget. According to the Transit Costs Project, transit projects in the U.S. are the sixth most expensive in the world. The countries that are one through five are New Zealand, Hong Kong, Qatar, Singapore, and the U.K. respectively. However, there is an important caveat to the data here: digging tunnels and building underground rail, like a subway. Make construction much more expensive than simply laying down rail over land. The five countries I listed are building projects that are more than 80% tunneled. New Zealand and Singapore's projects are 100% tunneled. In the U.S., only 37% of track is tunneled. I think among countries which are capable of developing rapid transit, I would say the U.S. performs pretty badly. It's not that it's without any bright spots. There are so many little things and big things that are broken about transit in America. This is Alex Forrest. I'm a transit planner for the Pioneer Valley Planning Commission in Springfield, Massachusetts. We met online several years ago through Twitter. Naturally, I immediately became a fan of his insight and how he communicates his ideas about transit. As with how transit got to be in its current state in America, there are so many culprits here. It's hard to know where to start. Culprit one. Labor costs. With our construction crews, we need them to be professional, trained, you know, doing the best work possible. So we don't want to sell them short. But at the same time, we need to come up with contracts that can actually ensure that there will be future contracts. Or else, you know, what are we doing here? Here's Sarah Kaufman. As compared to most other countries that have transit systems, employers in the U.S. have to pay out worker benefits, which. Significantly adds to the cost. Subway construction happening in France, for example, the costs would be somewhat lower because the employer would not be responsible for the health and wellness of the workers. Culprit number two: practice. You know that old saying, "Practice makes perfect." The USA had a first-rate, best-in-the-world transportation system. Well into the 20th century, and here's one of the most wonderful things about this vast country of ours: no matter where we want to travel, there are trains. Beautiful, comfortable passengers. At its peak in the early 20th century, the U.S. had over a quarter million miles of railroad tracks. Nearly every major U.S. city, from Atlanta to Los Angeles, had either streetcars or subways that a majority of commuters took to work. For more reasons than we have time to get into in this episode, the latter half of the 20th century saw the tides begin to turn. At that point, we have another host of structural decisions coming into play that kind of limited our ability to rebuild the system or to modernize it properly, and that kind of led us to where we are today. There's no consistent new building of transit projects, and so everyone is all kind of out of practice. So when a new project does need to get underway, it's like starting from square one. 
every time. A lot of transit agencies in the U.S. should be developing in-house capability. The less you need to contract your plans, your operations, et cetera, out to external vendors, the better you are just at the industry in general. The more things that we can be good at, the more effectively we can spend our money. It, it always sucks to see a huge chunk of your budget that isn't even entering the transit system. It's just being paid to you to give to a consultant to do work that you should really know how to do yourself. Culprit number three, transit agencies. Often in the U.S., a patchwork of different agencies all have different motives. Here in New York, and this is true in several other U.S. cities, we have this division of jurisdictions that is hard fought. The subways and buses are run by one organization, the commuter rails, uh, Metro North and Long Island Railroad, another. Meanwhile, we have the PATH train, which is one of the commuter trains to New Jersey, run by the Port Authority, and then New Jersey Transit, which runs other trains to New Jersey. It's pretty incredible how many different organizations need to come together. And frankly, they don't. When you look at other countries, they have more of a regional and national perspective on coordinating interests across boundaries. Lastly, perhaps the most guilty culprit, us, the public. There's that other old saying, time is money. Well, in the case of transit projects, the longer these things go on for, the more expensive they get. These delays are often a result of NIMBYs, people who favor projects in general, but when they happen near them, they say, not in my backyard. We discussed NIMBY attitudes around new housing development in our previous episode. And the same issues can be seen when it comes to transit projects too. We do have a public engagement process where people can oppose transit. And here in the US, people wildly oppose transit. They do not want buses and subways coming to their neighborhoods. And overwhelmingly, they come to community meetings and oppose it. Whereas in other places, the community has less input because it's seen as a community betterment project. And so that process, which can take years here, is a non-issue elsewhere. Residents will often weaponize regulations, such as environmental protection laws, in an attempt to stop what they see as an encroachment on their neighborhoods. People are loath to have, you know, large construction projects. And so tremendously excessive measures have to be taken to make sure the project is as not disruptive as possible, which perversely can end up dragging it out and making it disrupt people for longer. Trying to keep up with people's demands about any given project, not the least of which is the ability to block any given project or just modify it endlessly, which also adds costs. All these factors add to transit costs in the U.S., excessive labor costs, a lack of in-house planning expertise, multiple out-of-step transit agencies, and NIMBYs dragging out project timelines. Part of the reason that Alon Levy started the Transit Cost Project was because they believed that if the U.S. was able to look outside its borders, the shared knowledge and learning from other global cities will help transit projects everywhere. Even New York. There's this unfortunate tendency in New York to say, oh, New York is special, we don't have anything to learn from Seoul, we don't have anything to learn from Madrid, we don't have anything to learn from Milan, we don't have anything to learn from Stockholm. 
Every transit system has things it does well and things it can improve on. But the more I dove into the world of transit, the more I realized that all roads, or all railroads, lead to one place. Japan. This is the sound of Shinjuku Station. It stretches for more than a half a mile through the Shinjuku Ward and the heart of Tokyo. The area is a major commercial and administrative hub. Every day, it sees 3.6 million passengers, making it the busiest public transit center in the world. There are five railway and subway companies that intersect here. They link the Tokyo Metro to lines that service the suburbs west of the city. By one account, there are 53 platforms and over 200 entrances and exits to this massive complex. There's also long-distance bus service. While Shinjuku is the busiest station, it's hardly alone. There are nearly a dozen other major transit hubs spread across various wards in Tokyo. Each of these services one to three million passengers daily. The rest of the world doesn't even come close. Take New York's Penn Station, the busiest train station in the entire Western Hemisphere. It sees over 600,000 weekday passengers. That's one-sixth of Shinjuku Station. In fact, of the 50 busiest train stations in the entire world, 45 are in Japan. Train ridership can only get to these high numbers when the system runs effectively. In fact, in Japan, it's nearly perfect. This is Mr. Junichi Sugiyama. I live in Yokohama, Japan. He's a journalist who writes about train travel and business. And he's written on every single rail system in Japan. Next, I'd like to ride the Amtrak across the United States. I will practice my English to help with my travels. <laughs> Japanese people feel proud that the railroad system is so reliable and punctual, and when they can say there's a train station close to where they live. Punctuality and accuracy are the most important things, so that people know exactly when to leave the house and when they will arrive at their destination. Let's look at the Long Island Railroad, which operates out of Penn Station. The system considers a train on time if it arrives or departs within 5 minutes and 59 seconds of the scheduled departure. Even with this generous measure, nearly 20,000 trains run late every year. Now contrast this to Tokyo. Every year, the city's entire system experiences a cumulative delay of 20 seconds. Even these precious few seconds are an infraction worth an apology, like this statement that went viral in 2017. A company in Japan is apologizing after one of its trains left 20 seconds early. The company released a statement that reads in part, We deeply apologize for the severe inconvenience imposed upon our customers. That's incredible. For comparison, a review by New York's... Imagine a train company in the U.S. making a formal, public apology for leaving 20 seconds early. 
それはあの時間に正確に運行できるということは By increasing the frequency of trains, it will be more convenient for residents in the area. And subsequently, the town will develop. Ultimately, the goal is to have an accurate and efficient operating system. Tokyo also manages to integrate its various train operators very well. Here's Alan Levy. Tokyo has something very precious. Which is that it manages to integrate urban and suburban transit very well. So the commuter rail lines in Tokyo run through the subway system. And moreover, the subway system was built to form a tight mesh within the city, but also connect to these commuter lines. So Tokyo essentially built a subway system at metropolitan scale. The system in Japan is not without its drawbacks. For example, in Tokyo, the high number of competing transit companies leave riders paying with a jumble of different methods. But it's efficient and on time. And the high quality of Japan's transit system extends into the smallest details. Here's Alex Forrest. There's something much more everyday about the train in Japan. It's, it's not considered. The purview of only the marginalized in society is, is what everyone uses, and everyone expects the best of it. I, I remember one time in my most recent visit in 2018, I rode a train out to one of the suburban terminals, got off, the train went out of service, and the driver immediately got out of his cab and began walking down the entire length of the train, something like 11 cars, and just picking up every little bit of trash that he found. That wasn't the final cleaning. Obviously, they're going to have a crew deal with it, but you know. On his way out, he's just going to pick up everything and then let the next crew take over. And so, that kind of attention to detail and just insistence on you know, regular cleaning and maintenance goes a really long way. And I think that kind of focus also helps with other things like maintaining punctuality. If you care about the details, the details work themselves out. Clearly, the Japanese love their trains. And like so many love stories, it started in a time of war. Following its defeat in World War II, Japan was occupied by the American military. In Japan, this is referred to as GHQ, or General Headquarters. Its aim was to establish democracy and rebuild the country. Prior to the war, the Japanese National Railways, or JNR for short, was built and operated by the federal government. But when the war ended, JNR was relaunched by GHQ in order to make the railway system more sustainable, converting it into a public enterprise. The government operated railway became a government owned public corporation. JNR incurred a large deficit of 37 trillion yen, which almost exceeded Japan's national budget. On top of mounting debt, confrontation increased between management and the labor unions, leading to numerous strikes. Fares were up, ridership was down. It all came to a head in 1987. The country couldn't support it anymore, so they made a drastic reform. All of this debt was settled and the private company was created. This was the beginning of the JR Group. 
です。The corporation was split into six private passenger companies. Each was designated a different region of the country. There was also a freight and research company created. Most of the JR Group companies were granted the freedom to operate as private entities, and so they made efforts to lure back passengers. From the perspective of the rider, the staff have become kinder. After becoming JR, They started to focus on service because it's an independently profitable and private company. They felt that they had to make a profit, and in order to make a profit, a lot of customers have to feel comfortable and satisfied. So, the employee education was reviewed and the service was improved. There was also a marketing push. One example is this now famous series of JR Group. Christmas commercials in the late 1980s. Christmas Express. And the business model also shifted. The train companies were allowed to capture the upside of their own service. It was stipulated by law that the national railway company should not do business beyond building and managing railways. They were told that they could not invest in hotels, real estate, or supermarkets, as it would put pressure on private companies. However, once JR became a private company, it was possible to expand into new businesses, such as hotels, ski resorts, and real estate. And so, JR Group companies had a larger financial stake in the areas around their train stations, succeeding economically. The biggest business is to use stations to build shopping centers or condominiums. The station is not just a train station, but a base for business. It's where people gather together, so you can have a lot of different businesses there. When Japanese railways developed, they bought a lot of land at a low price first, and later put down a railroad track, and then the price of the land would go up. So they would sell it. Many urban railways in Japan have operated not only as railways, but also by diversified management. Today, JR East, the JR Group company that operates through Tokyo, is the largest fully privatized passenger rail company in the world. This method of Assuming the future added value that a rail line will bring to an area, and then developing based on speculation on that value around the station to guarantee your ridership in the future, which they call value capture nowadays. In fact, this is not that different from how railways in the U.S. were built. However, there are several key differences. When a lot of people hear this idea, they think that that is the only way that Japanese companies are making money. A lot of them are diversified. You know, a lot of these interurban operators also run department stores, which they plant at their main stations. They also run smaller convenience stores. They are property developers and they sell apartment buildings and things like that. But they make most of their money from transportation sales. The part that makes them the money is everybody riding those trains. This was usually not the case in the USA, where the main goal was just to make a killing off the speculation, and then you didn't really care what happened next. That was very good at getting things built, and really bad at getting things to stick around. And given his own background, Alex Forrest actually has a unique perspective on this. When I was born, my parents were still students, and they were both studying Asian languages. And so, very early in my life, my family moved to Japan. 
I lived there for two years in a suburb of Tokyo called Machida. Once a week, we would head down to the train station, which is maybe a 20 to 30 minute walk, and take the train two stops over uh, to go to church. This train, you know, even though it is ostensibly a commuter rail service, it runs, you know, like eight car trains using electric overhead power every 10 minutes at the higher frequency stops. It'll be coming every two to three minutes. This is the first train that I ever rode. I moved out before I was even five years old. And so I came back to America and lived in the Boston area at this point. And the great news was there were still trains to ride. But even as a kid, I could tell the difference in terms of the noise of the vehicles on board. They were clearly very old. You know, the stations were pretty grimy, um, you know, at best. And often a lot of things weren't working. The whole thing seemed to be shambolic compared to how incredibly organized and punctual everything was in Japan and clean. From that point on, I've always been interested in what transit is out there in the USA, in Japan, in the rest of the world. By the time I was in you know, middle school, I had kind of already cemented a personal goal for myself to make transit in America, or at least in Massachusetts, as good as transit in Japan. It's now 2022 in New York. The first phase of the 2nd Avenue subway has been running for just over five years. Good afternoon. We certainly meet in the most unusual places here in New York. Uh, very delighted to be here. Beneath the 2nd Avenue subway, something that we've been talking about for a very Governor long Kathy Hochul has moved forward phase two of the project, largely thanks to President Biden's $23 billion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Ladies and gentlemen, next stop, 125th Street. And the investment will go even further this time. While phase one served mainly a high wealth area, phase two will extend into East Harlem, a neighborhood largely working class and highly reliant on public transit. According to the governor's office, 70% of residents here use public transit to commute versus the citywide average of 55%. For the people along the next phase of Second Avenue, this development would be a huge life change. And that's the thing. Transit is the type of infrastructure with the power to change people's daily life, whether in New York or a city like Dallas, where I grew up. New York, you get this great mixing of social strata on the train, unlike you found in Dallas. And what is the critical difference here, right? Is it that, you know, New Yorkers are cleaner and more polite than people from Texas? I don't believe that's the case. I think what's going on here is just that New Yorkers have a much more useful service around. There are lots of problems with the New York subway, but just the fact of its availability, that's still useful enough to be pulling people from all realms of society together to take advantage of it. And it becomes just an everyday part of life. And I feel like this is probably the single largest thing that I wish I could convince more American transit operators to take seriously. The idea that you're not offering a service for any subset of the population. You're trying to offer a general purpose service which is therefore useful to every subset. Anywhere there's a person, there's at least a potential rider. 
In the end, I am perhaps foolishly optimistic about the prospects for a more transit-oriented future in the U.S. For one thing, young people are becoming more vocal about their desire for alternatives to driving. And as America continues to age, developing these alternatives will be increasingly important for seniors who don't want to be relegated to their homes in their later years. I see bright spots, like cul-de-sac, a new car-free city development being built in Tempe, Arizona. And private companies like Brightline in Florida and Texas Central are also developing intercity rail projects in places that have long been deeply car-centric. I'm hoping we'll see a lot more experimentation in the years to come. I've always said inertia is the hardest thing to overcome. And it's not that there's anything technically you know, infeasible about modernizing transit here. It's just we haven't done things differently in so long. Even convincing people of the need to do things differently can be very difficult. America has a real addiction to cars. And most of our communities are built around use of cars. And so it can be very hard to give up car usage, even if somebody tried. At the same time, I think that the younger generations in the US are seeing that and taking advantage of transit and biking and other options as better ways to get around. I hope that the interest in transit continues. Beneath the Surface is a production of Stripe Press. The senior producers for this series are myself and Everett Katigbak. This episode was produced by Dave Yim. Additional production support was provided by Lisa Yamashita Allen, Naito Ichiro, and Ben Southwood. Whitney Chen is our production manager extraordinaire. Our sound engineer is Swat Ayash, and our sound mixer and sound designer is Jim McKee. Original music by Oribus. For more on Stripe Press, our books, our films, and more episodes of this podcast, visit press.stripe.com. All right, that's it for this episode of Beneath the Surface. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. We'll see you next time.